Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Good to have you with us. I am joining you today from New Hampshire Public Radio here in Concord, New Hampshire, where in just a few days, on February 11th, New Hampshire holds the first primary contest of the 2020 election. Now, normally, the results of the Iowa caucuses would be driving the political narrative here. The night of the caucuses would see one candidate with a victory speech and others trying to put the best face on a loss. And all of us, reporters, candidates, campaign staff, would rush off to New Hampshire, where we'd arrive in the wee hours of Tuesday morning, exhausted but somehow forcing ourselves to sprint for another week. Of course, what we have out of Iowa is, well, pretty much a muddled mess. Iowa's totally screwed up. And a lot of people are wondering what the hell is going on. There are still so many questions about what happened in Iowa. Chaos and delay and turbulence and confusion around Iowa caucus results. Getting big numbers in these places. I'm out of breath here, sorry. <laughs> this is the bad place. Late on Thursday, the Iowa Democratic Party released the final tally, which showed Pete Buttigieg narrowly besting Bernie Sanders with 26.2% of delegate equivalents to Sanders's 26.13%. But Sanders had already declared victory earlier on Thursday, pointing out that he leads in the popular vote. And via tweet on Thursday, DNC Chairman Tom Perez called on the Iowa Democrats to begin a recount of the results. Try it again and see if you get the same results. Today, Perez is under fire with some Democrats calling for him to step down. So what does this mean for New Hampshire and the rest of the Democratic nomination process? For that, I'm joined by Priscilla Thompson, 2020 campaign embed with NBC, and Josh Rogers, politics reporter at New Hampshire Public Radio. Thank you both for joining me in studio today. Um, Both of you have been on the campaign trail here in New Hampshire, especially yesterday. Um, Priscilla, I'm going to start with you. Um, You were out with Pete Buttigieg, as you have been for, well, many months, since the fall at least. Tell us what it was like to be with Pete Buttigieg now post-Iowa and what you heard either from him or the crowd that was different maybe from what was going on earlier in the campaign. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting to be with him here post-Iowa because we see a situation where he's, you know, calling it an extraordinary week and, you know, at some points using the word victory. Um, But here in New Hampshire, he's really been sort of focused on, you know, but now I need to worry about New Hampshire and New Hampshire thinks for itself. And so we need to figure out how we're going to get the votes here in New Hampshire. And so, you know, he had a veterans event this week. He's really been leaning into sort of some of that, um, you know, part of his persona and personality. And I think he also recognizes that there are a lot of independent voters here. And so he's really trying to sort of bring those folks in. And I think what I found most interesting, particularly about his events this week, is that he hasn't really been asked a whole lot about the Iowa caucuses and those results or anything like that during the Q&As at his events. Um, And so maybe that's very telling that New Hampshire will think for itself and is making up New Hampshire voters are making up their minds for themselves. And Iowa won't have perhaps as big of an impact as it has in the past. 
Josh, what about you? First, to Priscilla's point about maybe Iowa just wasn't that important or isn't that important for Iowa voters this time around. And the other is that you were with Bernie Sanders yesterday. He, of course, did very well in this state in 2016. What did you see and hear? Well, it's certainly true that New Hampshire uh, rarely uh, follows Iowa's lead. I think it's been since uh, 2004 when a Democrat carried both Iowa and New Hampshire. And uh, New Hampshire certainly likes to think of itself uh, as a place where uh, people make up their own minds and often make up their minds late. Um, As far as Bernie Sanders goes, uh, he had originally had no scheduled events yesterday and then called a press conference at a campaign headquarters in Manchester. Uh, No people, just reporters, a sea of tripods. Uh, He came out and said, we won. And he said that that was based on his confidence that he had more votes in Iowa and that the delegate situation was going to be a wash and that in northern New England, as he emphasized, when you get more votes, you win. And, you know, he took a series of questions about uh, some of the results in Iowa, such as, you know, turnout being a little lower than people had anticipated and what that meant for him, given that uh, the viability of his campaign long term is kind of predicated on his ability to turn out more voters and build a coalition that can that can be Trump. And he, you know, kind of spun the Iowa turnout numbers by saying that a higher percentage of young voters had turned out than in prior caucuses. I think it was like 19 percent to 25 percent was the numbers he cited and that he felt that bodes well for him in New Hampshire. I mean, one thing that we ought to bear in mind in New Hampshire is that, you know, a lot of people have voted for Sanders here in 2016. He got 60% of the vote and he beat Hillary Clinton two to one. We're in a very different world now, but uh, it's worth bearing in mind that a lot of people have already indicated that they're comfortable voting for Bernie Sanders. And is the expectation game then one that Bernie Sanders has to be careful about? In other words, the the expectation is, well, of course he's going to win New Hampshire. He won here big in 2016. He's from New England. Everybody knows him. And if he doesn't win or if it's very close, what does that mean for him? Hard to say. I mean, I think that he feels that he needs a strong result here and his organization, which, you know, is pretty vast in terms of uh, its cadre of volunteers and canvassers, uh, you know, they've certainly been, you know, peppering every person I know cell phone with, uh, you know, get out and and, and vote for Bernie. And, you know, there's there are indications that that um, that, you know, he's going to have a strong showing here on the Buttigieg side. I mean, you know, Priscilla's right in terms of the role that independents could play. You know, there there's over 416,000 independents are called undeclared voters here in New Hampshire. They're allowed to participate in the primary, you know, with the absence of a competitive Republican primary. Uh, you know, more of them are going to gravitate towards the, the Democratic side. And while the number of so-called kind of sport voters who really kind of swing is pretty small, uh, you know, for Buttigieg, there are a lot of moderate voters in New, in New Hampshire. There are a lot of even moderate Republicans who may vote in the Democratic primary who – you know, he could potentially pick up. I mean, New Hampshire is a good place for what you could say would be a Buttigieg sort of kind of coalition of, you know, well-educated, relatively well-heeled, moderate voters. You know, the electorate is um, obviously pretty light on voters of color. That's one area where, you know, if Buttigieg is going to do well beyond New Hampshire, he's going to have to work on. But, you know, he's in a good position to do well here. And and certainly with Joe Biden's campaign, um not looking so strong at the moment. That's another thing that in his favor. Right. And Priscilla, that's exactly where I wanted to go with you about this question of voters of color. I mean, for Buttigieg to do well in Iowa and New Hampshire, those are just tailor-made for a candidate like Pete Buttigieg, and especially here in New Hampshire, as Josh pointed out with, you know, the 
southern New Hampshire is basically a suburb of Boston. And those kinds of voters really have been attracted to Buttigieg. But the question still lingers once we get out of New Hampshire and we head to Nevada and we head to South Carolina, how can he pick up votes from people of color? Definitely a question that's still up in the air. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see the poll numbers coming out of Nevada and South Carolina after Iowa and even after New Hampshire, because one thing that he's always said is that once, you know, I need to prove that I can win. And once I prove that I can win, those voters will see that they'll, you know, sort of tune in a little more to my message, perhaps. Um, and then he's also just said that, like, he, he's got to work for that vote and people need to know who he is. And one thing about, you know, winning the Iowa caucuses is that that's something that comes out of it. People are talking about you as the winner. And that is didn't exactly happen in the past couple of days. People, uh, I think news outlets were, were cautious of that as results were still rolling in. And even now there are some questions about the counts and accuracies. So I think we're waiting to see what will happen with that. And so... I think on on one hand, it sort of makes New Hampshire very important for him. He's always said he needed to do well in Iowa and also New Hampshire, but perhaps more so now in New Hampshire because he does need to continue to build that momentum going into Nevada, South Carolina, and even continuing on to Super Tuesday in California. Um, But I think the poll numbers are going to be interesting to see. Is he did he get a bump uh, among voters of color following those wins? That's right. And Josh. I wanted to just ask you about the two people we haven't really talked about, Biden and Warren. What do you think the expectations are for them? They seem to have fallen off here. Well, um, you know, Biden, I was out with him and he he gave one very lackluster performance, his first stop in New Hampshire, second stop in Summersworth. He went after Sanders and Buttigieg much more directly than he has thus far. It's clear talking to his kind of top supporters here that they, you know, and it's obvious that he needs to really do something here. Uh to turn this around. Turn and that's an around. open question. And that's with right. Warren, you know, she has a strong operation here. And she has a lot of supporters. You know, she could, you know, don't count her out. Okay. Yet. She has been uh, somebody who was also counting on a big win in New Hampshire. She's also a neighboring senator, and like Bernie Sanders. And the polling, especially over the summer, showed her doing really well here. What happens if Elizabeth Warren comes in third or lower in New Hampshire? I don't know what happens, but what has happened with her campaign is very interesting. If you had followed her around in the early fall, you could find lots of voters who were really deciding between Warren and Sanders. And people who had voted for Warren, uh, voted for Sanders in 2016, a lot of them said they felt Warren was running a better campaign, was um, more specific about what she was going to do, and seemed to be more energetic out there. You know, certainly if you're going to run on, I've got a plan for that, and you can't really explain how you're going to execute your Medicare for all, uh, I think that may have hurt her. But, um, you know, it's an interesting question. I really don't have a great answer. It, it's, it's sort of a mystery to me. And certainly there are, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of people who are passionately supportive of Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, this may just be the circles I know socially, but there are plenty of women in New Hampshire who want to vote for Warren and don't want to vote for Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders. And so that is another dynamic that will be interesting to see how uh, where we end up on that front. Yeah. And just noting here, I'm looking at the front page of the Boston Globe today, which is essentially a paper of New Hampshire. And it says, Warren's still dealing with fears about a woman beating Trump. So clearly, we're still talking about that. Um, Priscilla, let, 
let's talk about somebody who uh, we heard about while we were talking to voters, and that's Mike Bloomberg. He's not on the ballot here, but we heard from a couple of folks who said to us, well, I don't know. I might vote for this person. Also, I'm taking a look at Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the things that we were asking Pete Buttigieg a lot whenever Mike Bloomberg first got in is what that might mean for him when he does get to the Super Tuesday states. And, you know, there's the possibility of, you know, Mike Bloomberg being there prepared to capture that. And, you know, Buttigieg has sort of criticized, you know, veiled swipes at people who are using money to get on the airwaves and sort of get their voters that way versus getting, you know, the the retail politics of having to respond to questions in real time. Priscilla Thompson, campaign embed with NBC. Josh Rogers, a political reporter here at New Hampshire Public Radio. Politics is as much about optics as it is metrics. And on Monday night, as it became clear that the Iowa caucuses weren't running normally and that the metrics, i.e. the vote totals, weren't coming in, the Democratic candidates for president filled the void with positive images. Here's how Neil Levesque, executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics and Political Library at St. Anselm College, put it. You know, three quarters of politics sometimes is in the optics. So let me tell you what happened uh, the morning that New Hampshire voters woke up after the Iowa caucuses. They saw Pete Buttigieg declare victory, just like Bill Clinton did in 1992. Then they saw at four in the morning, Amy Klobuchar beaming like a victorious uh, athlete. Biden, who did not do well in Iowa, he came off the plane and the television cameras had him there. There was no one there waiting for him. He looked rather sullen. Of course, you win the Democratic nomination with delegates, not images. And in New Hampshire, that means not just winning over Democratic voters, but also having an appeal to independent, known here as undeclared, voters. These undeclared voters account for about 42 percent of registered voters, and they can vote in either the Democratic or Republican primary. In 2016, about 40 percent of those who voted in the Democratic primary were undeclared. Joining me to discuss how Democrats in New Hampshire balance this reality is Amy Kennedy, executive director of the New Hampshire Democratic Party. We started, of course, by asking what lessons the New Hampshire party learned from the debacle in Iowa. We've now had 100 years to perfect this practice, and we are confident going into the primary that this will be a productive process. Uh, we believe uh, in the integrity of the New Hampshire primary. Uh, we believe in the security of the New Hampshire primary. So we're feeling good and confident going into it. I think with all the questions that are still open about Iowa and and this week, uh, New Hampshire Democrats and New Hampshire voters, frankly, can feel really confident in the process that we've established here. The traditional mantra has been Iowa sort of slingshots a candidate to New Hampshire and then New Hampshire gets to make its views known about how Iowa vetted the candidates. What do you see? What a problem to have. Now, instead of having candidates drop out after Iowa, now they get time with all 10 of them still. And that's a great thing for us as voters. Um, they get to, voters get to meet the candidates across the state. They get to have that one-on-one -on -one time with them and continue that vetting process. And then we'll see what happens after the New Hampshire primary. I think you'll see the same uh, thing that you'd expect after Iowa. We catapult that candidate off into Nevada and uh, be proud of the system and the process that we had here. There has been some hand-wringing among some Democrats that turnout for the caucuses was not higher. It basically hit least at this point, it seems, hit 2016 levels, was far behind the 2008 turnout level. 
In 2018 and 2019, we heard stories about record turnout and enthusiasm among Democrats. So there's been some question about, well, has that flagged a bit? Are Democrats maybe not excited about their candidates? Tell us what your expectations are for New Hampshire Democratic primary turnout. We expect to have a much higher turnout than 2016. Across the board from 2016, we've seen higher turnouts in both the midterm election and in both of our municipal elections so far. And that is in part due to the energy and the excitement, uh, or maybe in some cases anger, uh, post-2016. But we also think that's in part due in part to the ground game that we've established in New Hampshire since 2016. Immediately after the presidential election, we started going with uh, our conversations to voters on the doors. We kept that activity going. And it allowed us to have those long-form conversations at the door. Through our partnership with the DNC in summer of 2017, we started our Resistance Summer Program, where we had organizers on the ground talking to voters, going to their doors, and instead of just saying, hey, there's an election coming up, how are you feeling? It was, hey, what are the issues that you care about? And then we were able to have those conversations and continue that work through the midterm so that we weren't just knocking on the door and saying, remember to vote. It was, hey, remember me? I was here a few months ago. We talked about health care for your aunt. And that kept the momentum going, I think, and in- continued engaging volunteers and active supporters so that we could rely on them for the municipal elections and the midterms. So we've seen across the board a higher turnout since 2016, and I think that we'll continue to see that this year. And tell us about the kinds of people that show up to vote a Democratic primary. A lot of folks don't know this, but you can come vote in Democratic primary even if you're not registered as a Democrat. And as many as 40, 45% of the Democratic primary electorate will be made up of people who call themselves independent. What's your expectation this time around? So I think we'll still see that increased independent turnout. One thing that we started earlier this year, or at the end of 2019, was a program to ensure that independents stayed as registered Democrats, because when they're done voting, they're able to change their registration back to undeclared or stay as a Democrat. That seems like this hard balance then to figure out how to talk to both people who are registered as Democrats while also appealing to a group of people that don't want to necessarily identify with the party? Well, I think it's recognizing who is the best messenger on this. Sometimes the best messenger is their local elected official, their uh, house member, their senator, uh, their town clerk, uh, who's having those conversations with them either in their elections or at a town hall meeting uh, or a school board meeting. So those folks are having conversations about policy and about what's happening in the state house or what's happening in city hall. Those are different conversations than what we typically have on the door. We ask about policy. We talk about policy. We want to talk about those issues, but we also want to remind them to vote and the importance of voting. So I think it's just recognizing what the better messenger is in this case. What do people who do not live in New Hampshire need to understand about New Hampshire that maybe they don't. Again, when we say to people who who are skeptical, right? Why does New Hampshire get to go first? What do they know? Why should they be the people vetting these candidates first? 
the conversations that New Hampshire voters have with those candidates, the the time to vet them, the time to ask the hard questions is something that we're just so used to. I tell the story all the time that in 2012, when I moved up here to work on President Obama's reelection campaign, one of the first conversations I had was with a state house member. How are you, I asked, how are you feeling about the president's work? How are you feeling about his reelection? And this was in April. And she said to me, Amy, I don't know if I can vote for the president this time. He hasn't had dinner at my house. And I'm thinking, coming from Florida, well, the president's not going to have dinner at your house. And the president had dinner at their house. This is New Hampshire. This is what we're used to. And so we have the time to have those in-depth conversations with them and challenge them and support them. And... I think that that is a very different experience than most other states have. And I wish I could share the wealth on that, but we're very protective of our primary here. Amy Kennedy is executive director of the New Hampshire Democratic Party. On Thursday, we ventured to Merrimack, New Hampshire, where Pete Buttigieg was holding a campaign event at American Legion Post 98. When we arrived, cars were filling up the parking lot of a school across the street and lining the sides of the road outside the American Legion building. A freezing rain was falling as we waited in line, and that's where we met Trisha O'Neill from Baltimore. Yep, Baltimore, Maryland. You came all the way from Baltimore. I came, well, yeah, I, first I went to Iowa on Monday. Oh, flew out. Flew back. Were you surprised at how well he did in Iowa? Not in the least. It was my third trip to Iowa to volunteer. The group Barnstormers for the LJ dinner out there, kind of like your McIntyre Sheehan. We had people from all 50 states there. We had 2,100 people who paid their own way to come to have that showing. So, no, I wasn't surprised. We had a negative flake rate in terms of people coming out to volunteer. You know, you expect you're going to lose 30%. And instead, at one, they had 60 more people than they planned on. So the enthusiasm was there. So we weren't surprised. Are you at all frustrated, though, that the race hasn't been declared yet? Do you think that hurts Mayor Pete? There's no sense in worrying about it at this point. It's just onward. You know, he has his rules of the road and joy is one of them. Um, And so we're just joyous. We know how we did. I was a caucus observer um, and saw the process for the first time. And those pieces of paper, I've got photographs of them on my phone. So we know what the numbers are. But being angry or frustrated about it isn't going to change the outcome. What did you see when you were in Iowa among Iowa voters that made you think like, okay, this is this is real? Um, The most obvious thing was the table. They have same day registration. And it was the table where People could go and register for vote for the first time or register and change their party. And I saw at least 30 people for Pete do that because I was standing in the hallway saying, if you're already registered, you have the fast pass, come on down. And that people would tell us that they needed to register. And it was mostly us because everybody in the hallway, the volunteers were all Pete people. It could have been anybody, but there were so many of us. And so I watched him right there, his line about future former Republicans. They were now former Republicans. And they were there because of Pete's message. And they went downstairs and voted. So are you going to volunteer here in New Hampshire? Then? Oh, yeah. I'm here till I'm here till Monday. Okay. So I drove up. I went to a foreign policy event last night for Pete in D.C. And then I drove overnight to get here. A little further back in line, we met David Seifer, who was still kicking the tires, as they say. 
What brings you to Pete Buttigieg event? I want to hear what he has to say, see him up close, see if all the hype is resonates. Now, have you been a Buttigieg supporter, or are you deciding on who to vote for? Deciding. And can you tell us how your decision process is going? Who are you deciding between? Right now, Amy, maybe Pete, maybe Mike Bloomberg. Even though Mike Bloomberg's not on the ballot. Yes. All the more reason to consider him based on what's going on in Iowa and what may or may not go on here. When you say what's going on in Iowa, what do you what do you mean about how confusing it is or what the results were? Whatever the tentative results are. Yeah. In terms of a moderate Democrat running. So your concern is getting a candidate that's not Bernie Sanders? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. What about Joe Biden? He was supposed to be that sort of moderate centrist. Unless things get good for him here, South Carolina, Nevada. That's why I think someone like Bloomberg will have that opportunity. Do you think he could, that Mayor Pete can catch on in New Hampshire? Look at this crowd. I mean, this is more than I ever anticipated. So clearly he has some kind of traction here. What are you looking for today from him? What do you want to hear or see? I'd like to, I'd like to get a sense of where he is in terms of how close to the middle, to the center, as opposed to the extremes of the spectrum. Unfortunately, the longer we waited outside, the more obvious it became we weren't going to make it in. And sure enough, somebody from Mayor Pete's team let the crowd outside know that the space was at capacity. We decided to head back to Concord, New Hampshire to hit the street looking for more voters. And even in the rain, Granite Staters were willing to stop and talk. I like a lot of the candidates, but I'm old And the age of Bernie and Joe, I really like both of them, but it really worries me. And I like people, but it doesn't feel right. I don't don't have a sense that I'm excited about anybody. So that's a big problem. I don't know. I'd give Biden a try, you know. But mostly, I don't know. Sanders, I have a lot of wishful thinking in my view. You know, his some of, some of the things he wants to do is just, uh, it's too far out there. Where's the funding? I've seen uh, Bernie Sanders. I've seen Elizabeth Warren. And I've driven by uh, Joe Biden on the highway three times. Uh, I am leaning towards uh, Mayor Pete at the moment, Pete Buttigieg. But I think anybody at this point would be great. Of course, it's important to stress that we've been on the ground here just in southern New Hampshire, And these voices are by no means a representative sample of potential primary voters across the state. But one thing does seem clear. Despite the controversy that continues to swirl around the Iowa caucuses, folks here in New Hampshire seem to already have moved on. They don't need an official re-canvas or final party-certified winner to tell them what happened on Monday night. Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg were the winners. Joe Biden was the big loser. And for now, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar have been relegated to the back burner. Now, the fact that Mike Bloomberg's name was mentioned is another sign of the instability of this contest. Whether the former New York City mayor can get traction and delegates in the March 3rd Super Tuesday states remains a big question mark. 
But if Biden limps out of New Hampshire, the pressure and focus will be on Bloomberg to be the one to potentially unite the anti-Bernie constituency. But Bloomberg has to prove he can win over skeptical African-American voters who may not be satisfied with his recent apologies about police tactics while he was mayor. And can he convince older, blue-collar voters who have a history with Joe Biden that he's an acceptable alternative? Iowa and New Hampshire normally have been critical in helping to cull the field and pick a frontrunner, if not the ultimate winner of the Democratic nomination. This year, that seems less certain than ever. So when are we going to know who's going to win this thing? Here's my advice. Except that this is the most unpredictable and unconventional primary campaign we've seen in years, or at least in recent memory. And that means we need to stop trying to make this fit into a traditional box and just go along on the crazy ride that is this Democratic primary. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So while I'm up here in New Hampshire, I wanted to talk to someone who can help us understand the political terrain. So on a snowy and slippery day in Bedford, I sat down with one of the premier political experts in the state, Dante Scala, a professor of political science at the University of New Hampshire. I started by asking him whether the mess in the Iowa caucuses would play a role in how primary voters in New Hampshire are thinking about the candidates. It seems to me that they are slowly but surely absorbing the fragmentary, incomplete information that's come from the Iowa caucuses. Typically, what Iowa does for New Hampshire is at least frame the choice. New Hampshire voters may not agree with whom Iowa voters picked as number one, but typically they at least take hints as to who's a viable candidate, who's not, who exceeded expectations, who didn't. And I think we're seeing now in New Hampshire's tracking polls that New Hampshire voters are indeed absorbing, deciphering the information from Iowa and applying it to their decisions. I say that because the candidate who exceeded expectations more than anyone else, Pete Buttigieg, is now surging in two tracking polls in New Hampshire and appears now to be in second place, perhaps just 10 percentage points behind Bernie Sanders. And the candidate who disappointed expectations the most, former Vice President Joe Biden, is skidding in the New Hampshire polls. But it appears at least that the Iowa results, though painstakingly slow, are solid. All right. There's not a cloud over them that we're hearing from the other candidates. No one's questioning them, the legitimacy of them. And so therefore, we are seeing results come in. The New Hampshire Union leader above the fold front page yesterday ran two pictures, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. And do you think that the contrast between the two of them has also been made clear? In other words, Bernie Sanders representing the more liberal 
revolutionary wing of the party and Pete Buttigieg being the moderate. Both campaigns through the past year have had a great presence in the state. I would rank them both among the top tier in terms of campaign organizations, resources, et cetera. So they are both, I mean, obviously Bernie Sanders is a well-known commodity in New Hampshire at this point, but Pete Buttigieg is also well-known and they have been busy defining themselves. I mean, Sanders really was defined from day one in New Hampshire. Nothing's really changed about Bernie. And sometimes people question whether that was a good thing or not for him. It's turning out to be a pretty good thing. But people knew him. Pete Buttigieg was a newcomer, but he was a newcomer who caught fire early in New Hampshire. I remember an event in, must have been March or April, where it was sold out. And Pete Buttigieg came outside to talk to maybe 100, 200 people who were the overflow crowd. And that was back in March, April. So he's been well, gotten to be well-known here. And I think in the past few months, he has been describing himself, defining himself as that moderate alternative. So at this point, I think that's becoming clearer to voters. And in addition, we're starting to see the moderate lane perhaps clear up a bit, or at least Buttigieg has sped forward ahead of Biden back into the moderate lane. And he's speeding off and Biden is spinning his wheels. New Hampshire, as you pointed out, it's got big working class population, especially in places like Manchester. But the southern part of New Hampshire is basically Boston suburb and a lot of affluent suburban voters. So Talk to us a little bit about the geographic divide in the state and what we should be looking for. So half of the Democratic primary vote next Tuesday will come from just two counties, Hillsborough and Rockingham, both border Massachusetts, and both are, as you say, the outer suburban ring of Boston. A lot of affluent Democrats. Um, We're here in Bedford, New Hampshire. Bedford, in a general election, tilts very heavily Republican, but there will be at least 3,000 Democrats voting here next Tuesday. That's almost twice as many as the city of Berlin, way up north, will produce. So there are a lot of those affluent suburban voters in places like Bedford, uh, Windham, Pelham, Bow up in Merrimack County, uh, Portsmouth uh, on the seacoast, Exeter, These are places where if Buttigieg is going to succeed, and by succeed, I mean not just a strong second perhaps, but I haven't ruled out at this point the possibility that he could challenge Sanders for first place in New Hampshire. He's going to have to succeed in those suburban towns, which also, interestingly, although Sanders did well everywhere in New Hampshire, right? He swept all 10 counties. He did relatively worse among some of those affluent towns, which I just mentioned, Hillary Clinton did better there. So I'm curious to see whether Sanders can duplicate that performance, does worse there than previously. Can Joe Biden have a comeback kid moment here? I don't think so. That would surprise me quite a bit. And I say that because from what I've seen, both in polling numbers as well as in person at a town hall that I saw in Peterborough last month, New Hampshire voters are favorably disposed to the former vice president. They like him. 
Um, but they are not riding or dying with him. If Biden had won Iowa and struck decisively there, I do think a lot of New Hampshire voters, those moderates and moderately liberal voters we were talking about, would have fallen in line. Do you see, I mean, obviously, you're not sitting in South Carolina, you are here in New Hampshire, but can Buttigieg, in your mind, really own a moderate lane without showing he has more support outside of the sort of white liberal, somewhat liberal group? No. I think that, I mean, this is the easy terrain for people. It gets rocky and uphill from here. And momentum has its limits. It tells the rest of the country what you're about. So people are learning what people is about, who he is, and so forth. And it means that other affluent, white, somewhat liberal Democrats will say, okay, it's Buttigieg. But that doesn't mean that will resonate the same way with African-American voters or Latino, Latina voters. Doesn't mean that at all. It just might mean that Buttigieg reaches that national audience, which we see microscopically here in New Hampshire. So that's another hill for him to climb. And right now, if I had to pick Sanders or Buttigieg uh, in terms of overall appeal to African-American voters, I would bet on Bernie. Buttigieg is tried somewhat and has failed again and again. Could that change? Weird things happen. Um, But there's no evidence of that so far. Dante Scala, thank you so much for coming and talking with me here in snowy Bedford, New Hampshire. You're very welcome. zoom out for a minute. So much of our attention over the last few weeks has been laser-focused on Iowa and New Hampshire. But back in Washington, D.C., life and politics spins madly on. On Tuesday, President Trump delivered his State of the Union address to an incredibly partisan and polarized Congress. And on the very next day, the Senate voted to acquit him on both articles of impeachment. Here to help us unpack all of this is Dave Weigel, national reporter covering politics for The Washington Post. Hi, Dave. Hey, good to be here. Okay, so Dave, we're both sitting here in New Hampshire, but the president has been taking up an unusual amount of political oxygen here this week. So what do you think that his acquittal and the victory lap he took at the White House on Thursday are doing to perceptions of him and to the Democratic race to replace him? Well, there's a theory bouncing around Democratic circles that I think I agree with, which is that when the focus is on the president's agenda – he often embraces things that are terribly unpopular, Medicare block grants, lawsuits to get rid of the ACA, tax cuts, et cetera. I mean, the passage of the tax cuts is one of the low points in terms of popularity of his presidency. Um, and when the focus is on Democrats, they actually do pretty well. Uh, what we've had for the last month instead, and there was, I think, no way for them to get out of this, was a focus on the the a scandal that made sense. You could explain an elevator, but, you know, maybe a 12, 13-story elevator ride. Uh, and very little focus on what Democrats were talking about. And what I found in Iowa, and a little bit here, um, New Ham- people in New Hampshire are a little more prideful <laughs> of, of how much attention they paid to their primary. What I found is Democrats just zoning out on impeachment, knowing it wasn't going to do anything to remove the president, and annoyed that they, <laughs> that they couldn't hear about anything else. So that I think that's ending. Now, my, my lens here is entirely Democrats because I've only right. been covering this primary for weeks. Right. But that's that's exactly what I wanted to get a sense of. And 
And speaking of Democrats and your your focus on them, another storyline this week is Dems in disarray. Yes, right. We have well, the this I- week. Yeah. This, well, <laughs> that's right. We have the Iowa caucus debacle. DNC chairman is now under fire, and then also this week. Two leaders of the Milwaukee Host Committee for the 2020 DNC convention in Milwaukee were fired um, after allegations of toxic workplace. Mm-hmm. What's what's going on, Dave? And what is this all going to matter or mean? Well, I add to that the Milwaukee convention is is looming for Democrats because it's not a tiny city, but it's smaller than the usual city that can host a convention effectively without people staying 30, 45 minutes away. So <laughs> nothing about... Their planning is going well. I, I was struck when I, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, heard, got questions from voters a couple days ago here, right before impeachment. One of the first questions was about the DNC and whether the party's being fair to him. And he hand-waved it away by correctly saying, when there's a nominee, they would get to replace these people. <laughs> and that's true. So so yeah. basically saying uh, – yeah, Sanders it, is basically saying, look, if I win mm-hmm. – all of this is going to be upended. They get, yeah, they get layered over with new people. Uh, the DNC has invested in the sort of organizing that it didn't in the Obama years after a first start. It, uh, there are people working for it who've been trying to do this, but the their their main problem is that they've been so toxified by 2016, uh, and by frankly having their email stolen and released, and having four years of people who consider themselves very on the left not trusting it. Uh, this exacerbates that. I mean, I'd hate to see what their fundraising is next week. So I, I think that they are in real, structurally in real trouble. Now, a candidate can win without a very effective uh, national committee. I've seen you know, pe- people win state races without the party being very good at what it's doing at that moment. Uh, but it is it is hobbling in a way that it did not want to hobble. Dave Weigel is national political reporter covering politics for The Washington Post. Dave, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for us today. Good to have you with us. The show is produced by Amber Hall and Patricia Jacob. Jay Cowett is our technical director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board operator. Katerina Barton is our intern. Holly Rungu is our digital editor. And Lee Hill is acting executive producer. Finally, a special thanks to the amazing folks here at New Hampshire Public Radio for welcoming us into the fold and being our home away from home this week. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The Takeaway.